Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning uh, to Berean Bible Church. We spent 14 messages doing chapter 1. I'm going to finish chapter 2 today with two messages. All right. We did one last week. We're going to do one today. And we're done with chapter 2. So we're, you know, I told you when we get to the narrative part, we'll move a little quicker. So uh, we'll be picking up the pace just a little bit. You know, there's a lot of talk among dispensationalists about a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem sometime soon. It's always soon. All right. I don't know how they're going to do it soon when the mosque is there right now, but they're talking about rebuilding the temple, and that's, that's really big in those circles. But as we'll see in our text in John 2, our Lord tells us that the temple has already been rebuilt. It's no longer a physical place, but it's a spiritual reality in Christ. Now, we looked last week at Christ's first miracle in Cana, where he turned the water into wine. And the first miracle that Yeshua performed was a private miracle. I mean, his disciples were there, his mom was there, a few of the servants knew what was going on, but other than that, no one really knew what happened at that wedding. And we talked last time about it was primarily a miracle of love and compassion toward that bride and that groom who would have been shamed the rest of their life had they run out of wine. So the signs that Yeshua performs in this book, the miracles that we see, are in the natural sphere and they're designed to express spiritual truths to us. It seems to me that first and foremost, the sign of turning water into wine is put in the beginning of this fourth gospel to indicate the inauguration of the new age. The coming of the Lord Yeshua. The age of law is passing away. The age of fulfillment. All things anticipated by the law are now being fulfilled. The water pots that stood there represented the Jewish rituals that are now transformed by Yeshua into the wine of the new covenant, which is grace and forgiveness of sin. So we see that, you know, I think that there's something there. That's what he's trying to show. These stone water pots, they represent the law. The wine represents the grace, and we're moving into a new age. Now, as a result of the miracle in Cana, Lazarus tells us this, his disciples believed in him. Because of the sign they saw, because of the miracle, they believe in Him. Well, they already believed in Him, but He's saying their faith is growing. They're believing that that sign encouraged them. And I want you to hang on to this thought about signs and belief. I want to look at this as we get to the end of the chapter. Well, after the wedding, Yeshua, His disciples, and His family take a trip to Capernaum. Verse 12 says, After this, He went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers, his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. All right, this is Capernaum. They're leaving from Cana, which you see Cana at the top there. There's Cana, and they go up to Capernaum. Capernaum's on the lake. It's on the Sea of Galilee there. Nazareth and Cana were on a higher ground in the hills of Galilee. So when you travel to Capernaum, you travel down. Because you're going out of the hills, you're going down to sea level, down to Capernaum. Now, from the synoptics, we learn that Capernaum was the center of Yeshua's Galilean ministry. And he actually moved there from Nazareth. So he was raised in Nazareth. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. That was the center of the Galilean ministry. Look at Matthew 4.13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. So he moves there, all right, which is by the sea. Now, notice what our text says. He, his mother, and his brothers... What's new here that we haven't seen before? I mean, in the miracle, he, 
Well, who was there? His mother was there, right? His disciples were there. Where did these brothers come from? All of a sudden, we got brothers. Were they at the wedding? Ah, probably. It was probably a big family deal. You know, they're probably related somehow. Um, and you read this text, and the most natural way to read this is that, guess what? Mary and Joseph had some more children after Yeshua. I mean, that's just how you'd naturally read this. But there's others who don't see it that way. Epiphanes said they were children of Joseph from a former marriage. Jerome said they were cousins. All right, this is Catholic theology, basically. Catholics, you know, they believe that Mary is something up there, special, sacred. Uh, they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. She was always a virgin. Okay. Well, Yeshua had physical half-brothers born of Mary. Matthew 13, verse 55 says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So according to the Bible, Mary had given birth to at least four sons and some daughters. So this shows the idea that the perpetual virginity of Mary is just a myth. All right, they're trying to elevate Mary to some special place. This idea of her perpetual virginity appeared in the second century. And those who propagate the myth, they try to twist this passage in Matthew and other passages like it, claiming that those brothers and sisters were from a previous marriage. There is absolutely no shred of evidence that suggests he had a previous marriage and had all these kids. All right? Or they speculate that Yeshua's brothers and sisters must have been either biological cousins. They try to say, well, this could, this word could mean cousins here. Or they say, these were spiritual brothers and sisters. You know? Again, there's just no evidence there at all. It's just, you know, trying to support a doctrine that you believe in, that you like, without any Bible behind it. The perpetual virginity of Mary is a myth. Her and Joseph had children just like any other husband and wife after Yeshua was born. Now let me ask you something. Why? What's the point of this verse? I mean, why does Lazarus tell us this? Some say that the purpose of this verse is in the narrative is transitional. He's moving. It's a transition to another phase. Well, that may be. But why does he tell us about the brothers? Why stick in this thing about brothers here? You know, everybody's at the wedding. They're not mentioned. All the brothers are mentioned, and you're not going to hear anything more about them. Um, why? Well. Hang on till we get near the end, and I think I'll show you a reason that maybe why he, he throws the brothers in here. I think, I don't think he does anything just so I need a few, I need another line. My manuscript short a few words. What, what can I stick in there? Oh, let's throw some brothers. No, I think everything in the scripture, there's a point to it. There's a reason it's there. So hopefully you'll see this reason a little bit later. Verse 13 says, the pastor of the Jews was near, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. All right, they're in Capernaum. Passover's coming, so let's go down to Jerusalem and check out the Passover. No matter where you're coming from, Jerusalem is up. All right, because it's on a hill, but also because of its sacred standing, Jerusalem's up. You went up to Jerusalem. So they're in Capernaum, and they're going up to Jerusalem. A two-day trip on foot. Um, no subways then, no cars, nothing. They just got out there and walked a couple days. You know, and, you're, and when they walking along the way, there's not a lot of hotels on the road or anything, so a lot of times they just lay down and sleep, you know, wherever they're at, get up the next day and keep on walking and get to Jerusalem for the Passover. Why did they go to Jerusalem for the Passover? 
I mean, why didn't they just celebrate it in Capernaum? Because according to the law, Jerusalem is the only place you can celebrate the Passover. Yahweh put His name in Jerusalem. And if you're going to participate, you're going to Jerusalem to do that. Alright? Yeshua was a faithful Jewish man, so He goes up at Passover time to Jerusalem in order to participate in the Passover. Now we know from what we see in Acts chapter 2, that there was people from all over the known world who traveled to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate Passover. We see next to all these different languages from all these different areas of people gathering together. They say, now I don't know how accurate this is, they say that Jerusalem normally had about 100,000 to 300,000 residents. During Passover, Josephus said there would be 3 million people in Jerusalem. So you got people everywhere, all right? People everywhere. The temple is just literally mobbed. Lazarus' description here of the Passover is kind of strange. He calls it the Passover of the Jews. What other kind of Passover was there? I think this supports the view that he wrote the gospel late in the first century, and he wrote it to a general audience that was mainly Gentile. So he's explaining it's the Passover, the Jewish thing, you know, that they do. It also implies, I think, the church no longer observed this. Because if the church was doing this, he wouldn't have to explain, oh, the one that the Jews do, you know? I think, personally, that this description also says to me that Yahweh is no longer in these feasts. Alright? He's not in there. It's the Passover of the Jews. Because in Leviticus, when he describes the Passover, it's the feast of Yahweh. These are not his feasts anymore. He's not in this. Alright? They're of the Jews. This is the Jewish thing that the Jews are just doing by themselves. Verse 14 says, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the table. Now this is not something you'd expect when you go to the temple, I wouldn't guess. Although a lot of modern megachurches would have this thing going on almost inside there, you know. The temple in this text is of course the temple in Jerusalem. But this is actually the third temple. Now, this is the second temple period, but it's, well, technically I guess it would not be a third temple because it was a rebuilt version of the second temple, but some have called it the third temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. You remember that? David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, his son Solomon did it. And when Solomon dedicated the temple almost a thousand years prior to this account, the glory of God fell on that place in the dedication when he prayed, the Shekinah glory of God came upon it, and they couldn't even go near that place because of the glory of God. His majesty just indwelt the temple. He claimed that place for himself. That was his house, and it would be the place where he would meet with his people. That was sacred space. God lived there. Whenever you went there, you took a sacrifice, and you hoped you went there without God killing you, because it's sacred space, it's God's house. And you wanted to be very careful when you went near there. That is where he dwelt. Well, the second temple was the one rebuilt by the Jews after they returned from the Babylonian captivity. Alright? In Ezekiel 11, it tells us that the glory of God left that temple. The glory got up and just departed from the temple because of the idolatry, the sin that was going on there in the temple worshiping foreign gods. So the glory departed. And so some call this temple, the this one that they're talking about in the text, is the third temple, it's called 
Herod's temple. It was a rebuilt version, but he'd been rebuilding it for a long time, over 46 years, rebuilding this thing, and it was quite a marvelous structure. Solomon's temple and the previous tabernacle was the place where the glory of Yahweh were displayed to his people. If you remember, if you've ever seen pictures of the tabernacle, at night you see this pillar of fire coming up over top of the tabernacle, just demonstrating the glory of God was there. It, symbol, it symbolized His eternal presence. But due to Israel's sin, the glory had departed. And there's nothing in this temple. This temple is a facade. Alright? Now the Greek word used here for temple is haros. And it indicated that this was the outer court of the temple area. It's a picture of the temple. I think we think of it, we tend to think as a single building. But it's much more than that. Uh, Jerusalem's temple, the most sacred spot, was in right here was the Holy of Holies. Right outside that was the holy place. And then you had the, another court um, that was uh, for the Jerusalem men, basically. The court of Israel, where the laymen would gather together. And following that, you had the court of the women. And then outside that, you had the court of the Gentiles. This is the whole outside court here that you see all around this courtyard is the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place Gentiles could go. You didn't dare step, go up those stairs into any of that other area. And this area is huge. It's about three football fields long and about three football fields wide. It was sacred space. It's God's house. But that's where Gentiles could come from any nation who were pursuing God, who were interested in Yahweh and wanted to worship Yahweh. They would come there and have an experience. They would meet with Yahweh. But the Gentile worshipers couldn't go beyond that point. There were signs on the walls that expressed to do so would bring death. Wouldn't that be great to go worship? You know, you're in worshiping, you say, well, if you go past this wall, you're dead. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting from our perspective, huh? This outer court was described by Josephus in his war. He says, there was a partition made of stone all around whose height was three cubits. Its construction was very elegant. Upon it stood pillars, an equal distance from one another, and on these pillars, he says, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters, that no foreigner should go within that sanctuary. For the second court of the temple was called the sanctuary and was ascended to by 14 steps from the first court. All right, so Josephus' quote about this warning is somewhat condensed. A fuller version, archaeology, they've literally found some of these pillars. And they found on these pillars these inscriptions. Uh, Zotterben's got one that reads this. It says, No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whosoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. Okay, you Gentiles, go past this line, we will kill you. They had temple police, 300 temple police roamed the temple with weapons, with swords, and they enforced this law. Carson writes this, the disdain for Gentiles, remember Jews didn't like these Gentiles too much, okay? Well, all right, you can come out here, but you step, we dare you to step inside here, all right? And failure to understand the nature of worshiping the Lord was found in the way the court of the Gentiles became the host to what was called the Bazaar of Annas. All right, this court of the Gentiles was literally turned into a circus area, all right? At one time, the animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley. 
on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. But at this point, they were in the temple courts, doubtless in the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court. Because they had these animals, we'll explain, you know, but they're coming there to sacrifice, all right? And you're coming from uh, long, long ways away. I'm going to herd my animals all the way to Jerusalem. It's, it's very, you know, task-oriented. But I could maybe just get to Jerusalem and buy an animal. Already approved. Sanctioned for sacrifice animal that they had. Alright? So that would be a lot easier. But it used to, they used to sell these across the Kidron Valley. Well, now they just moved the bazaar right into where the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping God. And the well-known high priest granted permission to family members and relatives. I mean, this was a really political, corrupt thing. To begin what looked like a flea market in this area reserved for the The Gentiles are supposed to come here to seek the Lord, right? And now in this whole courtyard, you got animals, you got bargain hunters, you got merchants crowded into that spot. No more dignity in there at all. No more quiet contemplation for the worshipers. And kickbacks and fees for the priestly family kept the bazaar in full swing. Everybody's making a lot of money on this, on religion. And they're not, I mean, the temple is no longer a place of worship. Now, this area called the Court of the Gentiles, this place was designated by God for teaching Gentile nations about the one true God. They were always supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. It was the only place where Gentiles could offer prayer to Yahweh. Again, this is sacred ground. They would come here to worship. This was the one place where the Gentiles had opportunity to come close to Yahweh in His sanctuary. But it says in there, there were those who were selling oxen and sheep and dove. Now, I told you these people, instead of bringing them, bringing their own animal, they just go to the place and buy one. Because these animals were sanctioned already. These were, you know, the priest had looked them over and they were designated to be without blemish. Now, you could bring your own animal, but your own animal had to be certified by the priest also. And so for a price, the priest would take your animal, look it over, and they would certify it. Okay, you can offer that. But here's the thing. Almost all the time, your animal would fail. Oh, sorry, this, we found a blemish on this animal. We got one right here that... It's already set, you know. And so, they would charge you and then fail you, and then they would sell you another one that was worth sacrifice. So, I mean, this system is just totally corrupt. So, the pilgrims would just travel there, and a lot of them just quit bringing an animal because they knew it, wasn't get, it was going to get rejected anyway, and they'd just go there and they'd buy it. It was a convenience for them to purchase you know, the animals at the temple. kind of helped them out, but the price gouging was incredible. Later on in the first century, Rabbi Simon, who was the son of Paul's teacher Gamaliel, he crusaded for a lower price for a pair of doves. He wanted the price reduced from two golden dinars to one silver dinar, which was 1% of the original price. He wanted to drop down to 1%. That's how much they were gouging the people so they could worship God. I mean, these were the leaders, these were the priests, this was the high priest. All they were all involved in this corrupt system, and they're just they love the holidays because they're making a fortune off the people who are coming to worship. And the money changers were seated at their tables. It was required that every Jewish male would pay a half shekel temple tax once a year. 
Well, you're coming from your town, your country, your region, and you get there, and guess what? You don't have the right money because your money has a picture on it, and they would not allow any money with pictures on it. You know, to them that violated Exodus 20 verse 4. You know, no graven images. You know, that's kind of if you really look at that text, it, the reason you're not to have a graven image is to worship it. It's not that something's wrong with the graven image. He said, "You shall not bow down to it or worship it." So you know they twisted everything that they could twist, probably. So they brought their money and they had to exchange it. Well, you know they're going to charge you for an exchange price. So you bring your Roman money or you bring whatever. We'll give you the the coinage that's allowed to. Then you get your coin and then you go give it. <laughs> so I mean, you're just everywhere you go, people. You better take your checkbook when you go to worship. All right. You better have your Mastercard because it's going to cost you some money. So this Yeshua, the Son of God, comes to his father's temple, and this is what's going on in the temple. And it said he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. You know, Yeshua didn't come into the temple and say, "Oh, guys, 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 let me get your attention. We need to have a Bible study." I need to show you what the scripture says about the proper use of the temple. Or he didn't go over there. You know, guys, your animals are really stinking up this place. There's a lot of noise. This is supposed to be a place of worship, so the Gentiles can come. You know, could you please, you know, move your animals out of here? No, he didn't do any of that. He makes a whip and he drives them out of there. This is a violent action by Yeshua. Have you ever had someone in your home, and you're eating dinner, and maybe the conversation got political or religious, and you got someone got angry, and just get the table over. You know, food flies everywhere. Can you imagine how shocked you would be? You were packing, you'd probably set them down back in their chair. Okay, you know, it'd be a shock. Or how about if you're in a restaurant, you're just having a quiet dinner, and someone's not happy with the food, someone brought them, or they're upset with the way they just tip the table over, and you hear this huge noise. It'd be very upsetting. When I was teaching through Mark, Mark also talks about this. I set this up. No one knew. I did tell my mother because I said I don't want someone having a heart attack. But we're in the gym at the time. If you remember when we met in the gym, a hard wooden floor, and I'd put a table, one of those tables, in the back, and I'd covered it with coins. Okay. And I said to Brian Gann, "I need you to do me a favor, Brian. All right, when I get to this part, I need you to just throw that table over and scream." <laughs> Oh my word! His dad flew straight up out of that chair, turned around like he was going to kill somebody. I mean, it was shocking. It, it's shocking because we're there, and I was trying to drop, make a point. You know, it, it's shocking because we're there worshiping and we're talking about God and we're studying the Bible. And all of a sudden, this scream and you hear this money flanging all over the place. I mean, that's upsetting. It would have been upsetting. It's a violent action. Yeshua is going from table to table, just. Throwing these tables over, money's going all over the place. It's crazy. He makes a scourge. It says out of cords. The word cords here is skoinion, which is used of like a rush or a plant, something. This word is used in Acts twenty-seven thirty-two to describe the ropes of a ship. So, what I want you to get here: this is by no means a deadly weapon. Okay, it's basically a rope. That he braided together, you know, there was animals there. He probably took one off these animals or something. He braids this, or he braids these palm branches like plants together, and he makes a scourge. So it's far from deadly. And the temple police strictly enforced the rule 
that no weapons were allowed in the temple. You couldn't take your staff, you couldn't take your sword. They enforced this. You're not allowed to bring that into worship. So he grabs this rope and he clears the temple with a rope. And it says he drove them all out of the temple. The word drove here is ekbalo. It means to force. This word is used often of Yeshua casting out demons. Ekbalo, he throws them out. He gets rid of them. I mean, again, it's a strong, it's a violent. The word all here is masculine, the masculine plural of pantes, all. And it argues for Yeshua driving not just the animals out, all, but the traitors also, which was the neutral plural panta would identify. So he's driving everything, animals, traitors, he's driving them all out of the place. And it says he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The word poured out here, these words are significant in Scripture. This is liturgical language. These words are used in the Hebrew uh, in the Tanakh, they're used in the Greek translation of the Tanakh, known as the Septuagint, and they're used in the New Testament in connection with pouring out of the blood of a sacrifice on the altar, and it's used of the pouring out of the wrath of God. And I think in this case, it's talking about the pouring out of the wrath, and this action, this Yeshua just cleansing the temple, is a prophetic sign. And they would have seen him as the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 that was predicted. Uh, such a sign done by this prophet would have indicated a future fulfillment. In this case, Yeshua's action signified the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. God is cleansing the temple. It's judgment on these people for their rejection of Yeshua. So we see this, you know, here is, most people don't think of Yeshua this way, okay? They think of him, he's just a kind, little, gentle, meek guy who doesn't, you know, raise his voice and he's real peaceable and all this. And here, you know, it's hard to picture him in the temple just throwing these things all over the place, driving people out. I mean, you know, it would be a little bit different experience in the temple. To those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. By claiming God is his father, Yeshua is pointing authority to his act. To his, he's saying, this is my father's house. They turned the place of worship into a bazaar. Now let me ask you this. How does one man with a braided rope drive thousands out of the temple? How does that happen? I mean, really. He's overturning tables. He's driving animals out. He's chasing these people out. And he's got a, a braided rope. Why didn't the temple officials stop him? They got swords. There's 300 of them in there. And right next to the temple was Fort Antonia, a Roman fortress. And they built this fortress high enough so they could sit on the top of it and look down into the temple and see what was going on. And anytime there was a disturbance, they could send a group of Roman guards down there and take care of that right away. So how come Yeshua was allowed to do this? I mean, everybody's just standing around watching this happen. No one's doing anything. How did he get away with that? <laughs> I think the why could be answered. Now, try to track with me on this. If we see this event was done near the end of Yeshua's ministry. We'll talk about this in a second. All right, there's, there's basically, 
There's controversy on this. But some say there's two temple cleansings, one in the beginning, one at the end. Some say there's only one. If this really did happen at the end of his ministry, I think the people would have been afraid of a rebellion. Okay? So rather than physically arrest or restrain Yeshua, the authorities simply challenge him, what gave you the right to do this? You know, they don't want to get into conflict. Now, the Tanakh predicted that Messiah would come and would purify the temple. Zechariah 14.21 says, In every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to Yahweh of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh of hosts on that day. Alright, so Yeshua's actions perhaps recalled this prophecy to the God of Israel who was going to cleanse the temple. There's not going to be any traitors in there. And by cleansing the temple, by throwing out the traitors, Yeshua was showing that the age of Messiah had come. Yeshua is fulfilling these messianic expectations. That would have been obvious, especially to the disciples who had just seen the miracle of Cana. And so they understand something special is going on here. Now, so maybe that's why. Maybe they realize this guy is something special. They've seen him do a lot of things. So maybe they're thinking, oh, let's, let's give him some room here. The how, how is he able to do this? I mean, like I said, there's armed guards in there. This is a, you know well-controlled place, how is he able to get away with clearing the temple uh, with no problems? Well, I think maybe if we think of the incident in the Garden of Gethsemane where the soldiers come to arrest him, and he meets them, he goes up to them and says, who do you see? And they answered him, Yeshua of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, They drew back and fell on the ground. Now, in the original text here, it simply says, I am. Ehia. That's the name of the covenant-keeping God. Ehia, Asher, Ehia, I am who I am. That's the name of God. And when he says, I am, they all fall down. The soldiers fall back on the ground. So what's going on in this temple when the Son of God is just cleansing it? It's a miracle, people. It's a miracle. One man with the braided robes clearing this. He is like Samson you know, endued by the Spirit and just taking on the whole place. He cleansed thousands of people out of that temple. Now, does it surprise you that Yeshua should experience real human anger? It shouldn't. He is both fully God and fully man. And He experienced all the human desires and conditions that we experience, but unlike us, He never sinned. His anger is a righteous anger. He's angry about the pollution of his father's house. The money changers and the merchants are robbing Israel through their inflated exchange rights. And he's angry because the Gentiles, the place they are to come and worship, they're being robbed of the opportunity to meet Yahweh. I think if Yeshua would come back today, he would cleanse a lot of churches. There's so much stuff going on there that's hindering people from ever seeing who He is. I think there should be times when we are like Yeshua in this act. There should be times of righteous anger. I think we need to be more like Him in that area. Because I think Yahweh is being dishonored, and when He is, it should make us angry. We should get upset over the things we see going on. 
Too often Christians are just complacent. All right, well, let's go back to this. I mentioned this earlier. Let's talk about this. How many times did Yeshua cleanse the temple? As you go through the Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about cleansing the temple after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Each writer gives a little different details of the story, but they all concur on the general time of when it occurred. But Lazarus puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. Because of this, there's been a lot of discussions among New Testament scholars as to how many times Yeshua cleansed the temple. Some argue that He cleansed it twice. At both the beginning and at the end of His ministry. And I think it's possible to argue for two separate cleansings of the temple. All right, But I think it's also possible to argue for one single cleansing. You say, well, there's only one. Lazarus got it in the wrong place. He doesn't care about that. All right, He's not interested in chronology. He's interested in theological messaging. He's trying to teach something. And none of the Gospel writers, none of the Hebrews really cared about chronology. Chronology is not important when they're telling a story. The facts of the story are what's important. You know, we get all bent out of shape about that. But So it's very likely he could just relocated this for his purpose. He just wants the event. He's not claiming chronological order. It's possible that he structures this so Yeshua's actions put forth this theological messaging that he wants to get across. Now, Basically, there's good arguments on both sides. Okay, You read some of the arguments, oh, that makes sense. Then you read the other side, and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And whichever one you read last, that's what you believe. Okay, Because, I mean, it's just kind of equal. You go back and forth. I tend to lean to one cleansing. And I think Lazarus moves it to the beginning just for theological reasons. All right, My reason for that is because, just think with me, if this happened at the beginning of his ministry, all right, He's just gone through his baptism. After the baptism, he picks up a few disciples, you know, down there in the Jordan. He goes up to Canaan at a wedding, kind of private thing. And so now he's back to Jerusalem. So who is he? Nobody knows who this guy is. It's Nazarene. No one's familiar with him. He hasn't really done anything. This is just the start of his ministry. Some unknown guy comes into the temple, starts turning things over and screaming. And what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, who the heck is this crazy person? Grab that guy and get him out of here. But. If this happened at the end of his ministry, now people know who he is. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's stilled the waters. I mean, the crowds are like, well, this guy's something. And so I think he could explain. He goes in there and turns his stuff over. And they're like, whoa, stand back. This is a prophet of God. And it just makes sense to me that, yeah, they would have given him room to do that at the end of his ministry. I can't see it happening at the beginning. Now, that's just my take on it, okay? Um, it, now, listen. Okay, so I'm a one temple cleansing guy. Now, if you're a two temple cleansing guy, we can no longer have fellowship, all right? We're just going to have to break that off right now because I believe in strict separation. You know, okay, please understand. I'm joking, okay? This is, man, it's amazing. But this will give people something else to separate over, okay? I don't care if you have one, two, it doesn't matter. I, I just think for John's purpose, he's trying to teach us something, so he moves it to the beginning. And it would make a lot more sense to me that, you know, this is a prophet of God that people know you know, if again, I just have a hard time understanding how an unknown guy can pull this thing off. All right? Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered. <laughs> they remembered. They see this action and they're like, Oh, yeah, we remember. The zeal for your house will consume me. These people knew the Tanakh. And so they see this stuff going on and they're like, Oh, yeah, remember Psalm 69? Remember what that says? For zeal... For zeal for your house has consumed me. 
And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Psalm 69 is the Psalm of David. It's a prayer for his deliverance due to his righteousness. The Psalm speaks of David's imminent danger due to the enemies of God who hate him because of his fervent devotion to Yahweh. Now, several verses in Psalm 69 seem to really point to the death of Messiah. So the early church saw Psalm 69 as a messianic psalm, prophesying the death of Yeshua. So they see this in here. And here's the thing, people. He's in here cleansing the temple. How do you think that's going to make the official Jewish authorities feel about him? All right, this is leading to his death, all right? This is the whole thing. It's leading to his death. He has got him really ticked off now. And that's another thing. I don't see how he does this twice and gets away with it, you know? I mean, they'd be so upset after the first time, all right? Yeah, I don't think they allowed him back in the temple. Lazarus changes this quotation from the past to the future tense. He, Lazarus says, zeal for your house will consume me, but the text in Hebrew says, has consumed me. Implying that the prophecy concerning David's greater son. He's picturing this is not just about David, it's his greater son. Messiah that is to come. Now in cleansing the temple, Yeshua fulfills a prophecy that our Lord's zeal for His house is going to bring about His death. So in John 2.17, Lazarus draws our attention to this point. This is going to bring His death. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the message, I said, why verse 12? Why do you talk about his brothers? Why would he even add the brothers in there? What's the reason for that? Well, I think it's interesting that in Psalm 69, if you back up a verse to verse 8, verse 8 says this, I have become estranged from my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Zeal for your house. I'm just thinking, wow, that is so cool that, you know, again, they knew the psalm. They knew the previous verse. It speaks of the alienation of Messiah from his mother's children. And then it connects the zeal of his house. And I don't think it's just an accident that in verse 12 he just throws it and his brothers were along with them. They didn't believe in him at this time. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they came to believe in him. So I think this could be a part of the reason that he mentions that family gathering there in verse 12 in Capernaum. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? All right, you know, they really didn't question him doing it. They didn't say, well, this is a holy, sacred place. Why would you do that? They knew (laughs) it was just plain corrupt, all right? Now, remember, when you see the word Jews in the gospel, and we're going to see it over and over again, it usually speaks of the enemies, the Lord's enemies. All right, so the enemies say to him, hey, what sign do you want to give us? They don't question him about... Why'd you do this? They say, what's your sign? Because every true prophet of God had to have a sign, and so they were like, well, you're a prophet of God. What is your sign? Look at Isaiah 7.11. Ask a sign for yourself, Yahweh of hosts says. Make it deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. It was expected that the Messiah would repeat the signs of Moses. So Yeshua gave them a sign. He says, you want a sign? Okay, I got a sign for you. Here's the sign. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now the word temple here is not heros, which indicated the outer court we saw earlier, the temple area. The word for temple here is naos, which indicated the sanctuary of the temple area. It indicates the holy place, the inner sanctum, or place where God dwells, called the Holy of Holies. Destroy this Holy of Holies, in three days I'll raise it up. 
Now, these people are so blind, so dumb, you know, they don't get this at all. The Sanhedrin later used Yeshua's words. We see these words used through the Gospels over and over against him about destroying the temple. They brought it as a capital charge against him at his trial, which was just really dishonest and deceitful because he didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up. And furthermore, he makes it clear he's speaking of his body. In other places in the New Testament, for example, I want you to draw attention to just the last phrase here. He goes, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. What's he talking about here? Talking about resurrection, right? We know that. But, so who raises Christ from the dead? He said, I'll raise myself. Well, Romans 1, it says that God through the Spirit raised Yeshua. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that God raised the dead. So guess what? you got every member of the Trinity spoken of as being part of the resurrection. The whole Godhead is involved. So the sign that Yeshua gives them is the sign of the resurrection. That's a pretty powerful sign, okay? Hey, what sign do you show? I'll show you a sign. I'm coming back from the dead. Wow, okay, that's a great one. You know? That's a great one. And if you have not seen the movie Risen, it's probably out on video. Awesome movie if you want to understand the power that the resurrection would have had in that time period. All right? I mean, here's this guy saying, I'll raise myself from the dead. I'm coming back from the dead. And they're like, so they kill him, and so they're afraid. What if it happens? Well, they thought, what if his disciples just steal him? We've got to do something. So they put a guard. The stones rolled away. He's gone. In the movie Risen, it shows one of the Roman generals tearing the city apart, looking for a dead body. They took the body. We've got to find it. I mean, he's frantic because every day, you know, decom- decomposition setting in, and I've got to find the body. So finally they bring him one, and he goes, ah, that's not him. You know, and he's just... He's, he's struck because where'd this body go? Because can you imagine? The power of Rome was crucifixion. It was death. And so Yeshua just defeated the power of Rome. Boom. I broke all the power that Rome had. Death. Overcame it. The resurrection. I'm alive. So he goes, I'll give you a sign. I'm coming back from the dead. That's a powerful sign. And you can imagine when that happened. People were like, oh man, this is serious stuff. Because he told us about how to live forever. I guess he must have some clue what he's talking about because he defeated death. Resurrection, that's the sign. They would destroy his body, he would raise it up. He knew his own future before it happened. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. It wasn't done at the time they said this. All right? It was years. They said The temple finally was finished around A.D. 64, 65 around there, just shortly before it was destroyed. This is a serious building project, all right? 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Because of the blindness, they're thinking about the physical temple. But Lazarus makes it clear for us. He said, he's speaking of his body. Just in case you don't get this, people. His resurrection, then, is the sign from heaven that ultimately validates his claim to be the Son of God. That's a powerful sign. Ever since the temple's rebuilding after the return from the Babylonian exile in the late 6th century, the temple in Jerusalem has been an empty house. you got to understand this, people. Nothing going on there was biblical. It was a corrupt political system 
just trying to make money off the people. They were lording it over the people. In the Holy of Holies, there was nothing. There was nothing. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. The high priest still went in there once a year, and I don't know what he did in there. You know, he must have been pretty bored. There's nothing to do because there's nothing to sprinkle blood on because there's nothing in there. The glory of God had departed. This was an empty, dead system. God had filled that tabernacle. He filled Solomon's temple with His glory. But now the Holy of Holies is empty. There's just nothing there. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. The glory of Yahweh, though, as I said, the glory in Ezekiel 11, we see the glory departing. Well, here, what you're seeing right here is the glory coming back to the temple. Now Yeshua, Yahweh, is in the temple again. The glory of God is back in the temple and He's cleansing it, making it very clear. A change is going to take place here. The body of the risen Christ is now the spiritual temple from which the living water of salvation flows. Yeshua is declaring His body, Himself personally, and the body, His body, the church, is the new temple of God. This physical thing is going to be destroyed. And the physical resurrection of Christ's body is the foundation for the new covenant people, constitutes it as the new temple. Now, as I said earlier, dispensationalism puts a great deal on the rebuilt temple. They missed it. It's already rebuilt. They're looking for something that's never going to happen. They look for a rebuilt priesthood, a rebuilt temple, because they fail to see the types. See, physical Israel was a type. So was the tabernacle temple. It was a type. And the writer of Hebrews says, who serve, talking about those physical things, who serve as a copy and a shadow. That temple, the priesthood, they were shadows. They were copies of the heavenly true thing. The tabernacle was a type. What was the anti-type? Yeshua is the anti-type. He replaces the temple with Himself. He's the anti-type of the temple. The temple represented the presence of God among His people in the early days. So Yeshua came and He pitched His tent among us. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He is the new tabernacle of God. Notice what Peter says of Christ. He is the stone which the builders, which was rejected by you, the builders, speaking of the Jews, which became the very cornerstone. He's the cornerstone upon which the spiritual house of God was built. If you don't build on the cornerstone of Yeshua, you don't have salvation. Because there is salvation in no other name. There's no other name given among heaven by which you must be saved than Yeshua. Paul put it this way. Of what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Watch. For we are the temple of the living God. Who's the we here? It's Paul and the Corinthian believers. Paul says, believers, we're the temple. And then he quotes, you know, you recognize that's a quote, right? Well, who's he, where's he quoting from here? Anybody know? This is awesome. He's quoting from Leviticus 26. Who do you think Leviticus is written to? All right, Israel, right? He says to Israel, and it goes, he quotes him just as God said, he's talking to Israel, I will dwell in them, Israel. I will walk among them, Israel. I will be their God, Israel. And they shall be, Israel should be my people. But now look at, he's talking to Gentile Christians. And he says, we are the temple of the living God. We fulfill this prophecy given in Leviticus. Dispensationalists say the church and Israel are two different things. That's nonsense. We are the Israel of God. I mean, he quotes Leviticus. 
to the Corinthians. Paul was not looking for a rebuilt temple. Not at all. He didn't need a rebuilt temple. Going the wrong direction. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul uses the plural here to emphasize that the entire church, he's speaking to the church, you plural, you're God's temple. You're God's dwelling place on earth. It's not some stone brick building over there. It's you believers. And it's not just select individuals. He says in verse chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Your body is a temple. Your body here refers to the body of each believer. Paul's use of the single form of body here emphasizes that each believer, corporately we're a temple of God. Each believer is also a temple of God. In this context, Paul focuses on the individual believers instead of the whole community. You're a temple of God. God dwells in you. Together, when we get together, guess what? God dwells in us because He's dwelling in each one of us. One is individual, the other is corporate. It's a plural pronoun. So both corporately and individually, we are the dwelling place of God. We're not going to any building to meet with God. He dwells with us. Now, since the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, there's no sacred buildings or places. It drives me crazy when people call a place where Christians meet together a sanctuary. That's not a sanctuary. That's a room. We are the sanctuary. Okay, The sanctuary is wherever I am as a believer. That's the sanctuary of God. Because I don't like it because it gives you some idea. I just live this carnal life of doing whatever I want, but when I go into the sanctuary, God dwells in there. And that's nonsense. He doesn't dwell in a building, people. That's Old Covenant. Yeshua Himself is our temple. Not some cathedral. Not some building. We meet with God in Yeshua and we dwell in Him and He dwells in us. In John 2.22, He says, So when He was raised from the dead, okay, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise. So John goes back, oh yeah, by the way, when He was raised from the dead, (laughs) His disciples remembered that He said this. Hey, remember what Yeshua said? And they believed the Scripture and the Word which Yeshua spoke to them. Good job, guys. (laughs) Yeah, He said He was going to do it. Look at that. He did it. I'll be doggone. That guy must have been right what He was talking about. Even His disciples didn't understand what He meant until after it happened. The Scripture they believed was the prophecies of His resurrection. They believed what He was telling them. And verse 23 says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, that's the context we're in, During the feast, many believed in His name, observing the signs which He was doing. Oh man, that's cool, isn't it? He's in Jerusalem. He's at the Passover. He's, you know, what signs did He do there? I don't know. It doesn't really tell us. I think the sign of overthrowing the money changers and driving all these people, that's a pretty important sign. No one's touching this guy. The temple police aren't touching him. The Romans don't leave the the fortress to come over. It's just, He's got control. Whatever they did, something was going on there. What do you think this says about these people's spiritual condition? It says, many believed in His name. What would you say that meant about their spiritual condition? I mean, according to the Gospel of John, I'd say, how do people become a Christian? You believe in His name. So if they believed in His name, what's that make them? 
Christians, right? These guys are Christians. Cool, the people are coming to faith in Christ. Well, wait a minute. There's a lot of commentators who conclude that these believers are not real believers. Okay? They're, they're not real. They're just pretend, I guess. One commentator writes this. This does not mean they place saving faith in Him as the Son of God. Well, what does language mean then? What do words mean? How else should He have said it? Because this is a normal phrase used through the whole gospel. The purpose of this gospel is that you may believe, and He uses it through the whole gospel, but these people, no, they didn't believe. Another commentator says this. Some expression of faith was made and was evident, but Yeshua knew it wasn't genuine. It was fake belief. Now, my favorite Lordship author, John MacArthur, says this. Right here, at the very outset of the Gospel of John, we're introduced to a very important issue throughout all redemptive history. The presence of false, superficial, artificial faith that doesn't save. So you got a faith that saves and a faith that doesn't save. Alright? you got two different faiths. MacArthur goes on to say, all belief in Him is not true belief. I believe in Him. Well, that's not true. How do I know what's true? Well, you got to believe with your head, not your heart. Uh, I don't know how to do that. You ever seen the track Missing Heaven by 18 Inches? Like, Doc, so close. I could reach out and grab it. And the whole point of the track is you believe in your head, not your heart. My heart is a blood-pumping organ. It's a muscle. It doesn't believe jack, okay? It can't believe it. It's my brain that believes, so to believe is to believe. And these people are trying to turn the faith of God into some kind of gymnastics. It's just, it's real. this is sickening to me. Because this attacks the heart of the gospel. MacArthur goes on to say, this kind of faith lacks repentance. And that's the heart of these lordship people. you got to do some stuff. Here's what's interesting. Here's what I'd like to talk to John about. You know in this book that was written, that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, and believing you may have life in His name, in this very book, the word repentance is never mentioned. What an idiot Lazarus is. He leaves out a key ingredient. He writes a whole book about how to be saved and leaves out a key ingredient. I mean, what kind of a moron does that? How to, oh my word, I gotta write another book because I told people to get saved and I didn't tell them what they needed. Repentance! It's not in here. You think that's an accident? <laughs> you think the Spirit of God somehow forgot to tell Lazarus to put that in there? This is crazy, people. But they, these people want to put stuff on you. You can't just believe what he's... you got to make sure, well, we got to check you out and we'll decide if you're a believer or not. What would make them think... I mean, why here in this text are they doing that? What always makes these lordship people say someone's not saved? Well, it's usually these people's actions. They'll do something. They'll say, oh, they did it. They can't be a Christian. But here it's the next verse that makes them say that. It says, but Yeshua on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. So they believed in him. Now, the word believed here, pastuo, and the word entrusting... The same exact Greek word, pastuo. And so basically it says they believed in Him, but He didn't believe in them. Now, everyone knows that the Gospel is believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and you shall be saved if He also believes in you. You know where that's anywhere in the Bible? What in the world is He saying here? What, why is He saying that He didn't believe in them? Because He didn't entrust Himself to them. Alright? They believed in Him. And I think the Scripture is really clear. You become a Christian by faith and faith alone. As we said, the purpose of this letter, therefore, many other signs Yeshua performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, I left a lot of stuff out, people. I just don't have room for everything. But, these have been written. These what? 
What are these? The signs. All right. These, the antecedent to that is goes back to the sign. A lot of signs he did. These, these signs, you got to hang on to that. These signs have been written, the miracles you see, so that you would believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, believing you might have life in his name. Now, if Lazarus records these selected signs to bring people to faith, how could people question the fact that people come to faith by believing the signs? Because a lot of people say, well, they had sign faith. I've heard of sign field, but I've never heard of sign faith. Okay, what do you mean sign faith? In other words, they believe because of the signs. Uh, hello, that's the purpose of the book. That's the reason for the signs that they might believe. <laughs> Lazarus tells us these people believed in his name. We know what that means by now. They didn't, oh, Yeshua, that's not what they're talking about. They believed in his character. They believed in who he was, the essence of who he was. This same expression is found in John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave you power. He gave the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe in his name. You believe in his name, you become a Christian. And then it says the same thing here. They believed in his name. If all those who believe in his name are saved in chapter 1, how do we get to chapter 2 and say, no, these people aren't saved? When Lazarus says someone believed, guess what? Lazarus means they believed. Lazarus has, he has use of all different words just like we have. And he doesn't, he's not writing this gospel to confuse us. They believe, but not really. I'm just saying that. No, when he says they believe, they did believe. Okay? And, and we'll get to this later, but listen, it drives me crazy. Because John MacArthur in, in Acts chapter 8, it says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. MacArthur says, well, it says he believed, but he didn't. Oh my word, who in the world put you in charge over the Holy Spirit to say the Spirit says he believed, but he really didn't believe? The bl- that's blasphemy, people. The Bible says Simon believed. But you know what? Simon did some stupid stuff afterwards. Oh, do you know anybody? Yeah, thank you. Do you know anybody else that might fit into that category? They become a Christian and they do some stupid stuff. Well, then you can't be a Christian. Because Christians are perfect. Lordship theology is Pharisaic theology. You are a Pharisee. You are self-righteous, judgmental person who sits in this seat looking down on anybody that you don't think matches up to your qualifications or what you think a Christian can do, and you judge them and say, not in. I'm in. You not in. I'm higher than you. I'm up here. I do everything right, okay? It's Pharisaism. I'll tell you what, people, when you free yourself from that, it's a real freedom from judgment because you don't have to judge your brother and sister. You don't have to just be a fruit inspector. You're more of a fruit cake than a fruit inspector. If you think you can look at everybody's life and try to tell how they're, if they're right with Christ or not by looking at them. I mean, it's a joke. When Lazarus says somebody believe, when the Bible says somebody believe, they believe. Just take it at that, all right? Don't listen to these lordship writers. Believe the Bible. Alright, gotta move on. That's my hobby horse. I think you all know that. But to me, that's more important than anything in the world because that's the gospel. The gospel is believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and you shall be saved. That's the gospel. Anything else we preach is secondary to that. <laughs> okay? Alright, so listen now. Both the sign of turning the water into wine in Cana, his first miracle, and this temple miracle both end on a note of faith. Remember in verse 11, he says, and his disciples believed in him, and now here the people are believing in him. So the goal of Lazarus in verse chapter 20, 30, and 31 is being achieved. That's what he's telling us. This is the purpose I wrote, and it's happening. 
The disciples saw this, they believed. These people saw, and they believed, so it's going on, and people are becoming Christians. In verse 24, he says, But Yeshua, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, because he knew all men. I think uh, Albert Barnes did a good job in explaining this, so I'll just let him talk. He says, Jesus did not put trust or reliance in them. He did not leave himself in their hands. He acted cautiously and prudently. The proper time for him to die had not yet come, and he secured his own safety. The reason why he did not commit himself to them is that he knew all men. He knew the inconsistency and fickleness of the multitude. He knew how easily they might be turned against him by the Jewish leaders and how unsafe it would have been if he should be moved to sedition and tumult. So he's just saying, ah, you know, you guys think I'm great right now and you want to do, but I'm not committing myself to you. All right? You know, at this point in time, not even the disciples fully understood what was going on. He didn't entrust himself fully to his disciples because in John 14, 9, he says to Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? You don't know me yet. So he's not entrusting himself to these people. They're believers. They trust him. But man, they got a long, long, long way to go, people. Verse 25, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man. He didn't need anyone to tell him about man or how corrupt man was or not to trust man. Christ knows the heart of all men. He's fully aware of our corruption, our depravity. Guess what? And he loves us anyway. That's incredible. Okay? He knows. No one else knows you like the Lord does. And I know that in our times we think, man, if someone knew me like I knew me, they'd never want to talk to me again. Listen, the Lord knows even deeper than you know, and he loves you deeply. That is incredible, people. Hang your hat right there. Okay? Just camp there. He's fully aware of our corruption and our depravity. He doesn't need anyone to tell us the condition of man. These last couple of verses tie into the story of Nicodemus. And we're going to go right into that. We're going to ignore the chapter and verse division and you go right into chapter 3 and these verses will tie into that. Next time. Now listen, when the physical temple was destroyed in AD 70, Yahweh was signifying this is the end of an age. This age is done. The temple is done because I'm moving into my new home, which is the body of Christ, the church. But he didn't move in until the temple was destroyed. So that temple was destroyed. That temple is over. But the temple has been rebuilt. It was being built all during those 40 years. Ever since Pentecost, the temple was... You know, when those disciples at Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon them, they started preaching. God was regathering the nations. The temple was being rebuilt. In AD 70, that temple was finished, and God moved in. It is the true temple. It is the spiritual temple. It is the body of the resurrected Christ. Listen, believer, let me leave you with this. You've got to get this. We, as believers, are sacred space. We're where God dwells. You didn't enter sacred space lightly. You never went to God's house casually, unthoughtfully, without a sacrifice. But listen, we now are His dwelling place. We are sacred space. He dwells in us. He dwells with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, it's just, it's exciting, Lord. And Father, I pray, Lord, for those who are being misled, those who are being confused with the Lordship Gospel that puts all the emphasis on what we do. Lord, I can't do anything for You. I fail miserably every day. I thank You so much that my salvation is dependent on what Your Son did for me. 
Lord, that is assurance. That is so much comfort to my heart. I'm saved. I'm in your presence right now, eternally, because of the works of your Son. My works are still filthy rags before you, Lord. Forgive me. I pray you'd help each and every one of us to realize we are sacred space. You dwell in us. May we treat this temple as holy unto you. Amen. All right. Any questions or comments? Dan? You know I have to do this. (laughs) 25 verses in two weeks. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, again, I tried to explain this to you. Here's the, here's the difference, okay? When you're dealing with theological, you know, didactic teaching, you've got to break it down. Now, we're in a narrative now. You know, we, the first chapter is very heavy, you know, didactic teaching, a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, so we lay the framework. But now we're in narrative. So, you, you know, I mean, I guess I could camp on one verse and talk about the temple for a whole hour, but you've got to get the story together. And that's what I'm trying to do. I want to keep this story. So you get the storyline. He goes to Jerusalem, here's what happens. So... Hopefully I painted a clear enough picture there. You see what's happening. Gary? Broke that narrative down pretty plainly. Oh, good. <laughs> well, good. That was, that was my goal. I want, you to, I want you to envision this temple. Yeshua going to this temple, you know, that's supposed to be his temple. I mean, he instituted this thing and he gets in there and it's just, you know, and again, you know, the, the Jewish people, God always wanted them to call Gentiles. Always. When he called Abraham... He said, in you may all the nations of the earth be blessed. It was always his call. Bring these na- the nations he had just been disinherited in Deuteronomy 32. He wanted them all to come back. So Israel was always supposed to do that. They always failed. And here's the epic failure. This is a picture of how they failed. In the very temple of God, the court of the Gentiles is just a big circus. Gentiles can't worship there. They can't see God there. They just go there to be ripped off by the Jews. Make them hate one another even more. I get a little wound up on the Lordship Theology thing. Because, I listen, I was in bondage to that for a long, long time. I know what it's like. I sat in the seat of the Pharisees. I was a Pharisee. I remember the time I would hear a Christian cuss, or anybody cuss, and right away, if they cuss, they're not a Christian. You know, how can you be a Christian and say that kind of word? No, they weren't saved. I didn't even go, you're done. No, I, I was a strict Pharisee, okay? No... You know, as a Pharisee, everybody does what you do, or they're not a Christian. If you read your Bible for an hour a day, anybody who doesn't, you know, it just makes you more and more Pharisaical. And it's, like I said, it's really a sad thing because what they're doing is they're hurting Christians because they're making Christians doubt. And now you say, okay, I doubt that I'm really a Christian. How do I get to be a Christian? Well, their answer is works. So I got to work harder. Well, how will I ever know if I've done enough work? And the works go on and on. So you never have assurance unless you attach your assurance to Yeshua who paid it all. Through the obedience, Romans 5.19, through the obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. That is the most incredible verse in Scripture. Take that verse, learn that verse, because that's how you're saved, by the obedience of Christ. His obedience. When people say, well, you've got to be obedient, I'm perfectly obedient. I kept the law perfectly because I'm in Christ. That's my obedience. It's the only good obedience. It's the only obedience I got, really. Okay, well, you know, people want to mis- mislabel this too and say, "Well, you're promoting sin." I'm not at all. If you know anything about my teaching, I think we all are called to live holy. We're sacred space. We're to live holy. It has nothing to do with your salvation. You do it out of gratitude for who, what He has done for you, not trying to earn something.